dose of dirty cold to go, been cold since cold flow. Got a wire to enlarge and I'll set a fire down below. I hang it up when you say sorry, didn't know. Probably got a year, ten to go, so let's go. I don't really know how to go slow. Hello and welcome to another podcast episode from the Anti-Racist Educator. I'm Hashem and joining me all the way from Arizona in the United States, thousands and thousands of miles away, so grateful and happy to have you here. It is none other than esteemed educator, activists, and one of the personalities from the film Precious Knowledge. It is Curtis Acosta. Hi, Curtis. How are you? How you doing, Hashem? I'm doing all right. I'm good. I'm, I'm really excited to chat about, well, we chatted about before, about the work that you do and the work that you've done and the really, really important moves you've made in advocating for indigenous knowledge and teaching it and obviously being really visible in the film Precious Knowledge. Um, I first saw yourself in that film and really encouraged like anyone who's listening right now to look out and have a watch. I think I found it on Vimeo. So it's, it's out there and we'll talk a lot more about what it was, but it basically chronicles your experiences as an educator and activist in high school when you were teaching kids in Tucson. We'll talk about that in more detail, but basically a lot of the work and focus of the film was on your Mexican American studies program. And it's something that found a lot of, found a massive backlash from um, the powers that be in politics and in education. But before we get into the kind of campaign and grassroots movement that you started to preserve it. Could you talk to us about what the Mexican Studies, Mexican American Studies program was and maybe then tell us about what it was like teaching it in high school? Ah, it's one of my favorite questions. And so it's a, it's a healing question um, for so much of what's going on in the world right now, especially in our country here in the United States. But all over, I know, I know we're not alone um, dealing with, um, you know, the rise of, of, uh, of racism, of fascism, of uh, the, hopefully the death throes of white supremacy um, and what that looks like and feels like in real time. So to go back and think about my classroom, which was one of the most beautiful spaces I've ever been a part of as a human being um, is really, really a gift. Um, so, so, so thanks for the question. Um, yeah, so I was, I started teaching um, as, a, as a pretty young, young man. I was about 22 when I started teaching right out of, right out of college, uh, 22, 23 years old. I got my first classroom um, and it took a few years um, to get the space that we're going to talk about in a minute, but I thought it took just a brief little bit of time to talk about that moment of being, you know, only like four or five years older than some of my students and having this immense responsibility. And then uh, at growing up as a person, I'm biracial. Um, I self-identify as Chicano, which comes from the term Mexica, Mexica, Mexicana, Mexicano, which is the, the Mexica is how the Aztecs thought of themselves, they, 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 how they, what they named themselves rather. Um, so that's where ter the term comes from for, for your audience. And so many people don't know the etymology. It's, uh, when the Spanish came over, they couldn't say the, the, the pr they couldn't pronounce the X sound as a sh, because there wasn't a sh sound in, in Spanish. So it became ch. So Mexicana, Mexicano became Chicana, Chicano. And so when we say Chicanx now, you know, keeping, uh, you know, uh, gender, you know, fluidity in mind and, and not being a, bi a, a binary thinking. Um, when we say Chicano, Chicana, Chicanx, what we're talking about is our, um, the, the, the fact that people of Mexican-American descent, Chicanas, Chicanos, Chicanx, we, uh, we come from the indigenous, we're the indigenous people of this land, you know, similarly, not the same, but so similarly to experiences of what many people call first world nations, but also, you know, the native and indigenous populations of this continent, Turtle Island in 
of North America. And so it was a way in the 60s, Chicanx or Chicano, Chicana back then, to say, I'm from here, you know, this is where we're from ancestrally. Um, and then, of course, the idea of you know, the mestizo and, and the blending of, that came, you know, uh, from colonization um, and colonialism is, uh, is a product of that. But um, so when somebody says they're Chicana, Chicano, or Chicanx, what they're saying is they recognize that, you know, they're from, you know, this, this continent ancestrally. Um, so when I became a teacher, I know that was a far way to go, but I, I, I was going to no, bring it thanks back. Thanks for that background, because especially coming from Scotland, this is like all new for me. And I'm sure for a lot of our listeners would be really grateful for that kind of background. Cheers. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. So when I walked in this space as a, as a brown man, as a Chicano, and I saw my little brothers and sisters in Tucson, right? I, I, it was the first time who were going to be my students, rather. So yeah, so the first time in my life, I'm, I'm, I'm a Chicano teaching little Chicanitas and Chicanitos, Chicanix, young ones. Um, and it, it gave me this like feeling of like this, I felt an immediate gap that I hadn't been prepared formally to teach them before. And, you know, to be, to, sorry, that I hadn't been form, formally taught how to teach what we would call Chicanx Latinx students now. Like my, my, uh, my, I had a good liberal arts background and sure critical thinking and things like that, but the canon I was given, not dissimilar to the canon that, that most folks in, in your neck of the woods were given back in the, the late 80s and, and early 90s. You know, we're talking about mostly European and European American um, artists. So I was a literature teacher, so authors and and in history, all that was through one single lens, right? And so that was, that was, I knew right away, I'm like, this isn't gonna work. Like what, what, what they taught me in teacher preparation program and what I had experienced. I mean, maybe, maybe we could use some of these, maybe I could scaffold to them. Maybe I can make bridges to Great Gatsby or bridges to, um, to Canterbury Tales or something. But I, I need to start with something that means something to us you know, where we are, like space and place, you know. So Tucson, Arizona is on, you know, traditional homeland of the Tohono O'odham Nation and also the Pascuayaki peoples. And so that, that perspective was in there too. So I knew right away I was going to have to lay down a foundation about who we were because it would have been different, I think, if I would have walked into a space of a majority uh, you know, European American or, you know, white students, I think I maybe would have hold, held on to my, to my training and to, to the books that I was learning how to teach. Um, I really had a bad teacher preparation program. So one of the reasons why I do that work now is to counter what I experienced. But, um, but I knew right away that we were going to have to, I was going to have to start learning about who I was in order to teach my, my students, you know, who we are. And a lot of that was my own self-work. And then I fell into a really cool group of, of uh, collective of educators that became what we call the Mexican-American Raza Studies uh, you know, uh, department and team. And uh, that it took, so I started in the mid nineties teaching. It took about 10 years for me to get my first um, Latino, Latina, what, what we would call Latinx, Chicanx studies, uh, I mean, um, literature classroom. Um, and so uh, I can start, you know, if, yeah, I, I'll pause for a second in case you have a question, uh, but then I could dive into what that space was like and how it matured. No, please. Yeah. I mean, that was a great, that was a great background and it's really useful hearing about like how you became a teacher. And I think me, I'm a very early career teacher and I'm still like reflecting on those days in university being taught how to teach and now having to like reckon with that in the classroom and also trying to recon reconcile it with like my own personal politics and realizing, oh no, there's so many things that I would love to do and like so many outcomes that I'd like to kind of make real, but I don't feel equipped to do it right now. But I suppose like, so conversations like these are part of my journey and like sharing knowledge and skills and experience. So yeah, thanks for that. And yeah, please go on and tell us what happened when you had your kids and then kind of maybe the, maybe the struggles that happened 
after those initial years of teaching or times? Yeah, so the couple of things, you know, to, as a bridge, since you since you brought up your own journey is, you know, I, I had to like, I was lucky I had good mentors and they, they guided me and like learning about who I was and learning about our literature, what, what is out there besides this traditional canon that still is has some really amazing works in it, but shows a singular viewpoint of uh, at least ethnically of what our what what the United States is and possibly the world too if we think about it more broadly so I, I remember cleaning out the Latino poetry the shelf um, my one of the everybody should make friends with a librarian they're amazing insurgents uh, they're mm -hmm. like frontline uh, essential for the revolution folks and so I love the librarian at Tucson High School where I taught she gave me like she like I she taught me how to check books out because if students wanted poetry or short stories that were from Mexican American authors or or any Latino authors at all they'd have to come to my little table student my student teaching table and come and check it out with me like in my and my it turns out my best friend I my I became best best friends with my cooperating teacher my mentor teacher, but like I was like in his room with a little tiny desk and then I was checking out you know uh, Octavio Octavio Paz or or Gabriel Garcia Marquez or or, or Sandra Cisneros books to some other uh, you know eager eager that students so cool. that wanted to read about our art yeah I was I mean I'm lucky right I had an amazing my and my and my cooperating teacher was biracial like myself. You know, we were the both had, you know, we had, um, we're both, you know, Mexican American or Chicana, or Ch or in, this, in our case, Chicano and, and, and of European American descent. So I had my, what, you know, later you'll probably, we'll talk about this idea of in La Quesh, but the idea is it's a Mayan philosophy. It's a, I mean, tu eres mi otro yo, or you are my other me. So little did I know, I had my other me was my mentor teacher right there. We were mirror images of each other. I'm more, He's more white passing than I am, but he, but I'm, I'm and, and, but we both, we both have similar uh, ways of connecting. You know, our, our experiences of growing up in a in a world that wasn't ready for biracial kids. Mm -hmm. So all of that stuff was really important and falling into. I, I, I encourage you know. So we have to do our own self study as teachers. You know, when we know where what's given to us isn't fulfilling for our students. It isn't. It isn't the right medicine. It's not the right vegetables. It's not, you know, it's it's empty calories, right? So how are we going to make, you know, and that that's not everything that we're given, but some things we know hit hit don't hit um, don't hit true and 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 aren't powerful and don't resonate and may not help our students much in, in a worldview or or a reflective view of who they are. And those are so important in the idea of not just teaching kids a subject, but teaching teaching human beings to be how to be better human beings which is i think a really really essential element uh of being of being a teacher and uh so what what ended up happening uh you know is you so self-study is important but i also falling into a group of educators i think we all need collectives right of of, of peers so yeah, it's, it's really essential, I think, to have, find a collective of educators that you can grow with um, as progressive educators. Um, and you know, it, it just that'll make more sense later when we talk about the um, the struggle. But it also feel, it, it, you know, teaching can be isolating. So you know, like we're in our classrooms, we have our students, but we don't have peers. We we don't not not a lot of places do we team teach. So it's, you know, you can kind of, I've seen it before, like I can, I've seen, you know, colleagues of mine um, who aren't in collectives, their skills atrophy over time. And so it's just really important for us as educators to be mindful of, of you know, making sure that we have, you know, there's self-care, but there's also professional or, or, or um, you know nerd care for like the things yeah, you nerd I mean, out about you like have we have to, to like work together and, and i think like that's what we try to do the anti-racist anti-racist educators that one of the things was we wanted to come together and share our skills but also support each other to get mm -hmm. through it and i think what you're saying like rings true like completely and without each other um especially the teachers that i know i would find it very hard to get through the day <laughs> and to like yeah. see any kind of light 
and to think that what we're doing is worth it over and above just being with like amazing kids because the kids are always great. Um, so yeah, tell us what was it like teaching those teenagers in the high school? Can you was it so? What age were the teenagers, and then what was it? What was it like teaching them? Yeah, uh, you know, unfortunately, our our program was it made it you know because of the structures in place in the United States. Like, so junior year is American history, U.S. history, and American literature, and so that became a spot uh, where we could actually advocate for creating class two as a substitute, as a replacement for the normal. English or history class. So that's, so our entry point, and that's the unfortunate part, was junior year, not freshman year, nor like kindergarten, but all the way you had to get to pretty much your 12th year of, of school, including kindergarten here in the United States, to finally, for if you're a Mexican-American or Chicanx kid, to see yourself in the curriculum, at least to dive deep into yourself instead of about that time, Maybe some additive type stuff was there, you know, like a unit, a lesson, a book, but nothing where you were going to really reflect upon your own history, the own contemporary moment, your own artist, your own, you know, who, who you are, where you come from. Um, so our students would get to us, they'd be 16 years old, and they'd be like, this is the first time I've ever seen my tia, my aunt, or my tío, my uncle, or my nana, my grandma, um, or my, my tata, my grandfather in a book, right? Or myself, right? They, this, these are the common things that we'd hear every year. Um, before that, actually, though, before we dove into the curriculum, almost every year I would ask my students why they took our class because it was a choice. Um, you know, we called it a selective, not an elective. In other words, you could, you know, take our class like you could an honors class, but it still counted for like the core English or history credit, which is a really controversial thing. Um, a lot of times with, with, with you know, um, classes about people of color, they're usually electives, they're extra, they're supplemental, they're not core. So we, ours were core. Um, so that was that, like they should be if you're going to study as seriously as we did, if you're going to have a rigorous, you know, analysis and review of, of the material, it should be in a core class. So anyway, our students, a lot of times I asked them why they took our courses and they were like, this is it. This is the last time. But if, if this course doesn't do it for me at that time, Mr. Acosta, um, they, they, you know, then I, I don't think school's for me. So they were reflecting because, you know, upon some real heavy stuff. It would happen every year, Hashim. Like every year we would, I would like, you know, we talk about like teaching to the standards or all these like kind of inauthentic ways of like of, of measuring up. But when the, when the, when the, when your students are telling you that, you know, you're the last stop before non-education is gone for them forever, you've raised the stakes way higher than any state standardized test or national test could possibly do. And we knew this to be true because of our own experiences of being alienated at school, of not seeing ourselves in the curriculum. So my colleagues and I, we were unabashed about like, now let's center it on us, but at the same time, let's make it comparative. Because we, that's the thing that we didn't have. We didn't have like oodles and oodles of you know, high school curriculum. Like we created all of our curriculum. Sometimes we were inspired, many times inspired by what we received in postgrad, you know, in, 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 a, in, in both uh, our, our college years and postgraduate studies. You know, if we found an accessible article that we knew fit into our units that our students could read, we would, I, if I, when I was in my graduate programs while I was teaching, I would grab the, you know, the stuff that, that, that I thought was engaging, that had a good writing voice, but it was still like my graduate and talk, doctoral work. And my students would eat it up too. And we would, it would just, it just, you have to like, you just have to scaffold it. You have to be a little bit different. But for the most part, you know, we wanted to give them a nice solid spine of, of like, who, you know, who they were. So authors like Luis Rodriguez and Always Running or Zoot Suit by uh, the play by Luis Valdez, um, um, So Far From God by Ana Castillo, so that they could see like their families, their culture in living color and study it. And the engagement factors rose 
rose uh, tremendously. But not only that, it was also creating space for them to find themselves and also not ignoring what was going on in the world. So it's a, it's a really, you know, Paulo Freire and pedagogy of the press call it tri-dimensionalized, right? You got to like know your social reality, the present moment, but also know your roots and know where you're going. And, and if you can like work all three of those things in simultaneously into school, like, like learning, then students are going to obviously see it resonate in their lives and be able to, to uh, they'll know it's for them, that it's not a thing they have to do, but a thing that's, you know, it's, 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 it's a basic need. And then later, and I'll, I'll stop after this as a tease, later we, we, we ran into our indigenous epistemologies, meaning the, the, the learnings from our elders, both in the Tonomacho, which is the Aztec calendar, the sunstone, and also in some Mayan principles in the Popol Vuh, that actually were saying the same thing that we were just kind of feeling as a group or similar things that Freire was talking about in Pedagogy of the Oppressed in his other works in, in Critical Pedagogy. So when we got that, we knew we were rolling. But the last thing I'll say is when the students had space to talk with each other, to be honest and vulnerable with one another, um, what, we t what we say a lot now is we went from, I, we got this from some youth in Napa, California. They're like, it's great to create a safe space, but what we're trying to do is push it to a brave space. And that's what was happening in our, you know, only, only the youth can be that like dope, like that amazing about to come with up with that wisdom, right? But that's what we were trying to do. She just synthesized it really well. It was like, we went from being able to share together be vulnerable together. Like here I was talking about what it's like being part white and the struggles that I had growing up and not seeing anything. Uh, you know, my, my culture was constantly being dogged out, being, being uh, looked through a deficit lens, you know, in the media and even in my schooling and what that did to me as a, as a Chicano. And my students were then able to talk, you know, and so I was modeling it a little bit. We're reading things that had to do with people reflecting upon who they were and how they came to be and how they balanced the messages they were getting from external forces versus the messages from inside their homes or inside those sacred spaces like school when it's done really well, like we were trying to do. And, and the, so the students were able to start sharing together, growing together, and they got out of stereotyping each other, um, whether that, you know, because we're diverse amongst ourselves. So just because a room's full of like, you know, brown kids doesn't mean they all think the same. Their experiences were the same. Their political views were the same. It was a, it was a space for us not to be accusatory, judgmental. Um, a lot of things, you, you know, that are the, what, what young people need in a time when they're incredibly judgmental. Um, sometimes schools can be, high schools can be really, really clicky in that, in that respect. Um, yeah, I mean, like, what you're talking about is, it summed up for me, a way to kind of battle that alienation that school can really kind of bring in kids. It's, it's not something that I maybe, maybe on, on reflection, I probably did feel it also, like being of Pakistani heritage in a white Scottish school and not having the chance to explore culture and my language in a way that like the school should provide. Um, here, what you're describing seems to me like that kind of space where students can feel comfortable to navigate those aspects of their identity. And then as in film, Precious Knowledge, it was also a space where they could be really quite radical and challenging in their thoughts and ideas and how they kind of go against the kind of the core ideas of what perhaps at that time it meant to be a good American or a good Arizonian, is that the word? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, Arizonan, yeah, close. Yeah, Arizonan. Because <laughs> um, in the film, it describes how the reception was pretty mixed, to be fair. And when it came <laughs> to the superintendent, that's, is that the kind of boss of education? And then people yeah. higher up, they basically saw it as a fundamental challenge to their authority really and they kind of they didn't hold back in trying to take you down like could you tell us what it what that was like having to live through it and then also <laughs> about how you and your students fought against it 
yeah, the contrast was amazing, right? So we had a space of such authentic joy. And it didn't mean it was easy. It just meant it was joyful. Um, like, you know, you know, some days we would we'd be grinding it out like you do when you're a scholar. But, but there was so much like community, so much connection between the students. And, you know, like, there was never, the individualism never, never, um, everybody had individual like, you know, expectations of themselves. And, and I had them, of course, as, for them as, as a teacher, student. But there was never like the eclipsing of we're doing this together. There's an egalitarian, equitable idea that's grounded in, in Lakesh, right? Tu eres mi otro yo, you are my other me. So that goes for me too. So we had to decolonize the classroom and we also had to, you know, have them understand that I'm just a human being too, that's there to facilitate and guide. And if I did it right, I was going to get mucho respeto, tons of respect anyway, right? But they didn't have to just bow down to me because I was the authority figure or the, um, the elder, right? They, 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 they needed to respect me because I was a good human being and because I, their, their interests were, were first and foremost in my mind and heart. That was the authenticity we had and, and vice versa. That was the standard we had for each other. That's hard to do, right? Because schools are been built where a teacher walks in, gets quiet and domesticated immediately. And that's exactly what, so that's exactly what these, these, these really high ranking Arizona officials, that's what their version of, that's their perfect school <laughs> is the one that's like the dehumanizing version, right? Which is youth, know your place, be quiet, you know, be domesticated, be docile, not the opposite. Like, hey, like, this is what we're all going through. This is the literature we're reading. Let's, ha let's how do we change the world for the better? What are your radical dreams, right? For the reimagining the world. Because that's what we need. How is it going to mirror in Lakesh? How is it going to be thinking about your other me out there, the most vulnerable amongst among us? Those were the standards we were that we were learning from our ancestors. So we wanted to, to use those standards to move us. And you're right, it became a place where, you know, not only do you have a couple of things going on, number one, we were radically shifting what it was like to do school compared to, to, to these to these men these European American men. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they were also, there's also that undercurrent of the history of Arizona, history of the United States, which is, you know, um, you know, anti, you know, Mexican, anti Latinx, Chicanx uh, sentiments run deep in the history of Arizona and, and anti indigenous, anti blackness runs deep in the history of this entire continent after after contact, after you know the, the effects of colonization and then the coloniality, we still live and breed everything. So yeah, so you had like you have this undercurrent, right? Of they might just they, these gentlemen might just detest us, our bodies and our culture, and just really believe you know ingrained in them as the white supremacist ideals, right? White supremacist ideals that were a part of all of our institutions in the United States maturing instead of what we say, which is like these institutions may, may still have value, may still have value if we reflect and see what parts aren't dehumanizing, right? Like in, a, a metaphor I use all the time is like in a democracy and doing the work of rooting out white supremacy, you got to weed your garden. So there's weeds all over the garden. If we let them grow, it turns into what the United States is kind of looking like right now. Um, like, you know, actually, I think probably what we're going through right now is, is the effects of people knowing that we're weeding the garden and, and viscerally reacting. So we were the canary in the coal mine. We were like the first ones, like, no, we weren't the first ones ever, but in this current iteration of hate that, and the hateful rhetoric and racism and dehumanization, when it came to um, a, a game plan to to use it politically our program was one of those first cases um we were before the black lives matter movement um, we we're before what happened in ferguson missouri so um we weren't before police violence towards or in slavery and and 
uh, colonialism or anything like that, um, and anti-indigeneity, anti-blackness. No, no, no. I want to make that clear. But this current, like, 20th, 21st century kind of, you know, uh, you know um, hatred and politicizing of hatred, um, the, the gentleman you were talking about, they, were, they, were, they saw uh, an opportunity to galvanize their own political power. And they, they won elections off of our issue in trying to root us out, trying to make our program illegal. So the reaction was going to be really, was really painful for us as a, as, a, as a group, as a collective, both teachers and youth is because we had to stay, um, we had to stay grounded in our roots and in, in our philosophy and our principles. So if we really believe you are my other me, that means the person that's coming at you with all this you know, hostility, this vitriol, that you still have to love up on them. Mm-hmm. You still have to not, not, not forgive them completely or being like, you know, but, but to, to not respond in kind with the same type of hate and vitriol. That's the self-discipline that we all needed to have. Um, it didn't mean we couldn't protest. It didn't mean we didn't hit the streets. And it didn't even mean we were even more dangerous to them because I think we were, by holding on to our principles, we were constantly showing them the, the we, they were the non-example and we were the example. Mm-hmm. And for, that dichotomy- Sorry, just, sorry. Um, just, I, I was just thinking for people that haven't seen the film, could you, could you spell out what it is exactly they tried to do to your program? Like, what were the actual concrete steps they took to kind of snuff you out? Yeah, so the first step was done by the then uh, State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tom Horn, who just thought he could hit the table, you know, get in front of the bully pulpit and just be a bully and get, get, you know, and scare our school district into eliminating us. That didn't work. He wasn't, he wasn't, he, a lot of the reason why that didn't work, and it shocked him, because usually when we're talking about this type of power and privilege, usually those people say things and things are done. That's what they're expecting. But the, one of the major reasons why it wouldn't work is because our community knew the ideals that we were, uh, that we were espoused and saw the work that our students were doing and saw the lives that we were changing. So one of the things I, we buried the lead is our program is one of the most successful academic programs in the history of our country for students of color, especially Chicanx Latinx students. And our students were mostly of, of, of lower socioeconomic uh, means as well. So we had like all the data and we had the right ethics and so the only way to get rid of us, you know, is to just put your boot straight to people. But we were also really, our students were amazing. They were organizing, they were organizing protests. They were, you know, they were at every school board meeting. They were practicing their own. They, here they are not able to vote and they're participating in, in democracy to a level that most people will even, never ever do, let alone 16, 14, 18 year olds, right? And of, of color, like often, you know, the narrative in our country is people of color don't care about this process. And a lot of times that's true because they don't feel like the process will ever have them in mind. But our students were trying to, we're, we're, we're not trying. They were actively changing that. So we became even scarier. So just banging the table, writing a ed- letter to the, the newspaper saying, you need to get rid of this program. It didn't work. And so, um, you know, also it's important for your audience to know that Phoenix is our capital, but Tucson is where we're at. So there's like a natural divide there anyway, um, between the two. I probably like not to, it's an old firm Darby, if you will, right? <laughs> Thank um, you. Yeah, but- <laughs> yeah. We do get that one. Yeah. Rangers and Celtic. Yeah, you are one and they're, and they're the other. Yeah. So, so that, that added to all of this as well and then and so they knew they couldn't get us out the easy way the, the way they're usually so they tried through legislation and it took three legislative attempts but finally to get the governor to sign uh, and, and and the governor only signed it because this is ironic as, as anything when president obama won in 2008 he took office in 2009 he took our our governor into his cabinet and our governor was a Democrat, and then who rose to power was a very right-wing um, Republican to replace her. So we were probably going to still prevail with, if 
Governor Napolitano was still here because she would have kept vetoing it, but Governor Brewer took over and she was, she was on board with, with the legislation. And so in 2010, the law was passed and um, to get rid of our program. And then it took, uh, we kept fighting them. We, we sued them in federal court. Um, at the same time, our students kept, you know, being visible, kept talking about their experiences. And then things started turning ugly in 2012 when they, when, when the final, when they finally, um, they, they made the moves to the policy decisions here locally to get rid of our program. And those were some dark days. Um, but in the meantime, we, we graduated two or three cohorts, six cohorts, if you think about, or five cohorts rather, no, six, I'm right, six cohorts of, of students got through our program since the initial days of that state superintendent who became attorney general because he was so popular with these people who obviously have a lot of, um, like in our, in, our, in our state, we have a lot of people that were proud of what he was doing to us. So he became attorney general, the third highest ranking person in our state government. And um, it took six years though for them finally to end our program, to dismantle it in January of 2012. I think, yeah, like that case and the long history of how, I mean, you would think a teaching program that is clearly having such great outcomes. And you were talking before on a previous call about how you might not want to frame the success of your program in terms of improved attainment and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, data, better results, et cetera, et cetera, because that's not the, that's not at the heart of what the program was, but there was no like rational reason for them to go for you other than just plain racism. Like that was it. Like any kind of challenge to dominant narrative, which enshrines whiteness and white people and that specific story of the United States um, seen as just such a threat, like a huge threat. And you could tell like they must have spent God knows how much money and time and effort uh. to get to get rid of you. And just like hats off to you and all the kids for going through it. And as we can see like now in the United States and also out west like that, it, that example made it into my teaching course for my primary education. Um, one of our lecturers, well, she was planning on showing it to us and then for whatever reason, like the projector failed, but it was like on our syllabus for the whole cohort of, I don't know, 500 people to watch the film and then kind of attempt to tie it in to our own praxis as political beings. And mm. just uh, that story making it so far is a testament to how powerful it was. And then seeing the ethnic studies program, which um, we were saying before is kind of fed off from the kind of legacy of your own one. It's kind of got, it's, it's gone through the entire, entire United States. And it seems like it's a kind of established part of many higher education programs and possibly in secondary also. So it's, it's, it's clear, the legacy is clear and it's, 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 it's terrible what they did to you, but you clearly have left a bigger impact than they could have ever imagined, really. So that kind of brings me on to the kind of last point of uh, the podcast. So if you could talk briefly about what you think the importance of grassroots struggle, which I see in what you did with your students and fellow teachers at a high school in Tucson, the importance of grassroots struggle in facing off structural racism. Yeah, I mean, without grassroots struggle, we're, we're, we're in deep um, trouble at try to, to try to find, to live up to what I think many of our indigenous, you know, um, the indigenous knowledge and, you know, in all of us. I bet you if you go back into all of our roots and find out what our ancestors were really saying, I mean, it's hard for people, some, some cultures more than others, it's difficult because that stuff has been absolutely erased due to, due to you know, um, due to tragedies and traumas and, and colonialism and, you know, colonization and, and whatnot. But there's a, there's a basic, like, you know, you know, human theme of, of, 
of living, how to be a better human being, right? And so right now, the structures that we have, at least in our country, and I think, you know, through the globe, especially through uh, the rise of capitalism, is, is uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't hold on to those <laughs> those markers of treating people as if you're all related, as if you're one. Um, no matter how common we see that knowledge in different continents <laughs> across our our globe, which which I find inspiring when I find when I say in Lakesh to somebody, and then like for instance the Lakota people, they'll tell me, oh that sounds like Mitaki Oyasi, which is we are all related, and I'm like, yeah, that does sound similar. How can we use this? And then, and then somebody will say Umbutu. And somebody will say, you know, and, and you'll be like, wow, there are these really, these amazing connections um, that we should really, why aren't we, why aren't we focusing on that, centering that? But grassroots is the only way to do that, right? So, you know, when you think about, um, you know, for us, you know, we, we never stopped fighting. It wasn't the entire collective that was at the start, but a chunk of us made it all the way through to holding these people accountable in court in 2017, five years after our program was destroyed, dismantled by the state, we held them accountable in, in the federal government of the United States. The federal court said that it was racism and uh, that, that it, was, it was racial animus that, that violated the first and 14th amendments of Mexican-American students. And you only, you, know, you only do that through grassroots organizing and grassroots efforts to keep things alive. So I think the same thing about, you know, the Dakota pipeline, you know, in Standing Rock when in, in, here in, in the United States, when the, the Lakota people, Dakota and Lakota people were fighting against having an oil pipeline, you know, go through right near, you know, sacred land and, and, wa and, and a water, their water resources and uh, to, for, for life. And uh, it, took, it took grassroots efforts to put people on the ground, but it also took legal efforts. And the legal efforts are only there when the grassroots efforts are there, right? When you make a big enough noise, when you say, come look over here, there's some major injustice, there's human crimes going on. And so, so, um, and, and so they're fighting that out in court as well. And you just see like, it takes multiple entry points for us to get justice. And it all starts with grassroots efforts of organizing, coming together as people. And so one of the beautiful things you just referred to, so instead of those darker ones, what we saw from our, from our, our program getting, you know, standing firm allowed people to start asking questions and people to write stories and people come down to Tucson and seeing our students to do what they're doing, seeing the teachers doing what they're doing, seeing our nanas, or seeing our abuelitos, our abuelos, our grandparents doing what they were doing and going, wait, something's wrong here. And of course, other people were coming down here and going, get rid of these people. But, you know, but, but, but the mess, you know, we were creating in the machine was a beautiful mess that allowed shine to go all around the country because there were already other spots around the country for years and years and years of other people doing similar work to what we were doing. And because we were facing such an uh, oppress oppressive backlash from very clearly, you know, and now codified in federal court in, in the in district court in this country, you know, uh, racist actors, because these racist actors were coming at us, it was so clear, it allowed like those spaces that were already doing this beautiful work to grow and come together and start. So we started organizing, we started finding each other. So immediately after what was going on, or simultaneously what was going on in Arizona, I started working in Northern California, where I'm from, like originally, you know, where I grew up, and working with Bay Area teachers in California, in San Francisco, in Oakland, who were in, in Northern California, who were trying, who were already, who wanted to make ethnic studies what we had, what we, what was lost was going to grow elsewhere, and that's what we see now. It's unbelievable. I cannot believe in 2020 that you have. A gra you know, graduation requirements and the standardization of ethnic studies programs. But I want to use standardization. Um, I want to talk about that in a second. But you see it like as a requirement for graduation, as, as, as a necessity for, for students to, um, to experience so they could learn that you are my other me, um, you know, through content, through community building, uh, in much the ways that we were doing it in our program. And what, what I laugh about standardization is, is it's not, it's, you know, it still has, you know, ethnic studies for a long time was, was, uh, was um, 
you know, it was, was looked down upon. It had its own, uh, you know, narrative. It had a, a baggage with it, like, you know, as, as, um, not, as anti-American, much of the way, the way they came at us. And what we're starting to see is that flipping now where people are starting to want to learn what it really was. Really what it, what it came from was the idea of third world studies. Like here we have this country, right, of, uh, you know, besides our, our, our native population, the original stewards of our lands, here in you know the united states you have many immigrants from all over so like let's use that cultural wealth as a as an asset and let's build from it and that's what let's study ourselves and and then be able to contribute even more uh even better and knock down some of these discriminatory racist misogynistic uh sexist trans and homophobic all these obstacles of hegemony and so so that's what ethnic studies is. And now we're seeing now in 2020, people warming up to that in school boards and superintendents of schools and teachers, they want to learn how to do it because there is a recipe because the, the, um, the, the, you know, the, the, the research speaks for itself. Our program was one of the first K-12 programs that got the research, had, was, had quantitative research done on our, our outcomes. But now you're seeing it replicated in many, many different places and it's not context bound. And that's what's beautiful. So, so being a part of this grassroots movement, but it needs to continue. There's a lot, a lot of the middle part of this country, you know, still isn't there yet, um, but they will be. You know, we just gotta keep, you know, um, keep working together, keep getting the message out, keep communicating and doing, doing programs like this and conferences and other ways of, 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 of collaborating across the country. And then when we get a vaccine for this, this pandemic, the, you know, then maybe we can start organizing again in person and doing that real work. Because last decade, we went from losing one of the most, you know, pivotal, you know, K-12 ethnic studies programs in the history of our country into blossoming thousands and thousands more. And that, I, and as much as it hurts to say, you know, that's the trade you make, you know, and we came with some personal, you know, and for our community, some sacrifice, but, um, but, there's beauty that comes out of that, right? And Shipetotec is one of our, one of the, is a Nahuatl word that literally that translates into um, transformation. It's the snake shedding its skin. And so instead of thinking of things dying, you just think of things transforming. And so the movement just transformed. We, we held it for a while, we held it down and we, it's this, the, the skin was shed and it's now something bigger and more beautiful, I think. Yeah, it's, um, it's, gone across an entire country and obviously it's gone <laughs> outside the borders of states to kind of reach us here because obviously I'm here in Scotland talking to you about it. Um, the effect is so amazing, as you say, transformational and completely necessary. Like when I think of politics right now and politics becoming even more nakedly racist as the days goes on, and especially as like the presidential election tumbled towards that happening, when rhetoric gets even more violent towards the most marginalized people, I think programs like the Mexican American Studies program and ethnic studies is just essentially just, it's, it's what we need and it's what education needs to ward against the kind of anti-racism that I, us, in Scotland and the United Kingdom have been kind of prone to accepting, which is that we buy into the overall message of our history. We don't quarrel with the big ideas. So we don't quarrel with, for example, ideas around empire or um, disenfranchisement, dispossession, like we don't argue with that, but we instead argue for just a kind of piece of the pie. But what we're talking about mm -hmm. with this is that no, we need to transform the entire thing and we can't just take things exactly. as they are and our voices are what is needed to affect that transformation until they're heard, nothing's going to happen. And as, and, yeah, and as you say, like you have shown that it works and I can't imagine the number of kids and teachers, families also and communities that must be so touched by it. So thank you so much, Curtis. It was such an incredible chat. So educational and inspirational. Thank you so much. Uh, it was the best part of my day too, Hash. And thank you. It's an honor to, 
to be on with you and uh, and hopefully, you know, we won't be strangers and we'll, we'll, we'll keep going. So I'm really excited about the work you all are doing. Yeah, no, we're going to keep on, keep on building links between Scotland and Arizona, please. Like it, it needs to happen. And everyone who's listening to this, I, I actually looked at our podcast stats and most of our listeners are from the States. So all you listeners in the States, there's people in your country who are doing amazing things and people in Scotland, please take a look at Precious Knowledge. And Curtis, can you tell us if people want to find out more about your work and maybe what you've already done, where could they find that on the internet? So, um, yeah, uh, we do consulting. Um, I have a good team that you can find. Uh, it's, uh, it's a long uh, URL, but it's Acosta Educational Partnership. So if you look up acostaeducationalpartnership.com, you'll see, you'll see our team. We're going to start actually uh, next week. We're going to go live for the first time and with, with, a, with, a, um, with a, a new project where we, and traditionally we've worked with, with school districts, but we're going to just start filling up courses. We're going to do online modules. And we, we've always loved to do the in-person, but now everybody has these, these, these um, technology literacies where we can do professional development online so we're gonna we're gonna be doing that and we'll probably do it quarterly on ethnic studies culturally responsive sustaining humanizing the classroom that type of work um and so that'll be coming out in october um so uh but yeah so keep your your your, your folks could, could look up us there and then um, you know, I'm, I've, I have some articles out there and I'm working on a memoir that should probably be out sometime maybe next year. Um, but hopefully we won't be strangers at that point. And then um, we can talk more about some of that then. But the memoir is actually about the time period we were talking about and what it was really like, you know, on almost a day to not a day to day level. But <clears throat> there was there's stories there that people don't have never heard that, you know, need to be recorded, need to be out in the world. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to immensely hearing even more detail about that year and thinking about how it can transform all of our teaching. Um, thank you so much, Curtis, and thank you so much, dear listeners, for tuning in and downloading again. Um, stay tuned for some more episodes with even more inspirational educators out there. And catch you next time. Bye. Dirty cold to go, been cold since cold flow. Got a wire to enlarge and I'll set a fire down below. I hang it up when you say sorry, didn't know. Probably got a year, ten to go, so let's go. I don't really know how to go slow. Just got